0: Hello there, folks. This is Mr. Davis, and I'd like to welcome you to the first of the JFS Six Form podcasts. Um, History podcasts, in fact, not just general podcasts about my life. Um, It is my hope that these podcasts will cover the entirety of the A2 course, and the idea is, as you may have heard, that you should be able to listen to one in about the time it takes to walk from Kingsbury Station to the middle of the Sixth Form Centre. So they're each going to be sort of little potted um, accounts of a particular aspect of of one of the units or one of the bits of the, um, the Nazi A2 course. And hopefully by the end we'll have like a complete library of them. But this is sort of circa 2013. We're going to be kind of recording them and releasing them as we go along. And hopefully, in the time it takes to get to the end of the year, we should have a complete set. You never know, this could be the only one that ever gets recorded, but we'll find out. So I'm going to kick off, and I'm going to be talking to you today about the Kaiserite. Um, ...that you may remember from the dim and distant days of the end of Year 12... ...when you'd all just done your A two AS levels... ...and were like, I don't need to listen to anything you say, sir. Basically, we are magic. But I bet you regret it now. You know, curse you, Year 12 version of you... ...for your lack of attention. But anyway, I hope that we'll be able to cover in fairly short order... ...some of the pertinent details of the Kaiserreich. Um, this first session... I think, is going to address one of the key questions about the Kaiserreich, which is, how democratic was it? Now, this is information that can be used in essays about how the Kaiserreich managed to survive for the length of time that it did, but it also might come up, as it does in the essay that I think some of Mrs. Fox's students did, um, with a question like, by 1914... The Kaiserreich had moved on to being a, was moving towards being a parliamentary democracy. How far do you agree with this statement? Um, And I'm going to kind of take that question as my guideline for the course of the next couple of minutes and hopefully sort of talk you through the structure of the Kaiserreich's political system and sort of guide you to an assessment of how democratic it was. And I, you know, as I teach my students, I'm not writing a murder mystery, or you're not writing a murder mystery when you write an essay. So I'm going to tell you right now, you should find out that it is not particularly democratic, that despite some concessions and some kind of, what's the word, uh, surface features of a democracy, the Kaiserreich maintained and remained an autocratic regime it's notable that upon its foundation in the 1870s it was referred to as having a fig leaf of democracy as you may remember me saying to you last year it is a fig leaf of democracy like you have on statues of naked people in the Renaissance obscuring the ugly hairy genitals of absolutism which dwell beneath. So let us begin. So the first thing or the first characteristic that you need to know about the Kaiserreich, is that it was ruled by the Kaiser. He was the um, descendant of the family that had originally been the kings of Prussia, and upon the unification of Germany in, the 18, in 1870, they had become the Kaisers, which means emperor, and shares the same origin as the word Tsar, and indeed the word Caesar, um, had become the emperors of Germany. The Kaiser wielded immense political power in Germany, in reality. In theory, he was responsible for making all decisions of foreign policy, whether they went to war, whether they stopped war, who were their allies and who were their friends, was in the hand of the Kaiser. Um, in addition to that, he had considerable power over domestic policy making. The Chancellor the um german not head of state but the guy who kind of as you will see managed the day-to-day affairs and most of the legislation in germany was his appointment they were beholden to the kaiser the chancellors were and not to the german people he could sack them or he could back them and as i will demonstrate that was quite often what happened if the kaiser liked you and you were a chancellor you stayed in power and you stayed running the country if he didn't like you you got the sack um, and there was nothing that could keep you in place whatever anybody else in Germany thought about you um, in, he was responsible for the law he was the guardian of the constitution and in practice he had fairly autocratic powers um, however it was not often that the Kaiser himself was a person who implemented policy in any meaningful way. That was the duty of his Chancellor. Now the Chancellor saw or oversaw the running of all of the ministries in in the Reich, in the Empire. Reich means Empire, as we hopefully know. Um, he was a person that actually, in effect, ruled and ran and sort of set the taxes and all of this type of thing in. Um, in Germany on a kind of day-to-day basis. The Reichstag, the, the elected parliament in Germany, could be ignored by him if he saw fit. They could pass resolutions, they could make laws, but he could entirely ignore them. So we have a man who effectively runs the country, manages the country, as he sees fit. And he is put in place, not by the German people, but by the whim and the will of another single individual the kaiser the relationship was originally one established by otto von bismarck the first um chancellor of germany and his emperor wilhelm i and their relationship was one where they kind of worked together or well, the Biz- bismarck was his was his representative and because bismarck was the guy who designed the german constitution the kind of the unified constitution he set it up so that his position had an awful lot of power he he still needed to have to negotiate and work with the reichstag to a degree he had to be able to get them to back um and sort of like put the policies that he proposed into law but because he they couldn't make him listen to them and because as I will say below, the, um, the Kaiser could dismiss the Reichstag at any time it saw fit. In practice, this was a position of immense power, and it was a position of immense power placed in the hands of an undemocratically chosen individual. Well, what about the Reichstag? I suppose this is as good a time as any to discuss them. Now, they were a democratically chosen organisation, they were elected. They were the lower house of the German parliament, um, and in theory, they had legislative power. They could they could make the laws. Um, they also had power over the budget, particularly the military budget, um, and this meant that in theory, they had a power to influence the um the actions of the of the chancellor and the decisions of the kaiser admittedly they only got to vote on their approval or disapproval of a military budget every 7 years which meant that if the kaiser did something to annoy you in 1888 and he'd only just um voted a budget through you would have to wait until 1895 to punish him so there would have been an election <laughs> in between now and then so it wasn't something that you could necessarily respond to the kaiser's actions with very effectively and sort of to sort of deal with a, a problem that was emerging in that very moment so that power was there but it was ineffective oh i should say actually it was changed to every five years in 1893 but even so, only being able to sort of say we approve or disapprove of what the Kaiser has done over the last five years through our withholding or opposing of a given budget it's still not a kind of immediately kind of responsive or particularly potent political power to possess. But although it was a weak organisation, the Reichstag was democratically elected. It was elected through universal suffrage by all men I say universal, it was elected through a suffrage of all men over the age of 25 regardless of wealth. So, a democratic institution in that respect. And it, um so we can see that there were, there is a gesture to a democratic system in Germany. It was comparatively powerful compared to some um like sort of nearby European powers. Britain at this time has not got universal suffrage. There's still like a, a system of suffrage which is based on home ownership. In practice, it means about 80%, something like that, of British males over the age of 21 can vote. But at least Germany has the idea that all men are able to vote. But there are deeper problems with the Reichstag that prevent it from being a truly... Um, democratically elected organization. For one thing, the constituent boundaries of the seats in the Reichstag have not changed or had not changed from 1870 to 1914. They had remained the same. Now, the problem with this is that over those years Germany had undergone a massive industrial revolution. So this means that the population of cities had grown very very rapidly indeed. Now in Britain in modern Britain when an area becomes more populated it can it the a constituency is reduced in that area or the constituency boundaries are moved to ensure that roughly every British parliamentary candidate British MP represents roughly the same number of people. In the Reichstag, the boundaries remained the same from when Germany was a more agrarian society through to an industrial society. This meant that the number of industrial workers who lived in these cities that had got so densely populated over this period, that these these industrial workers were electing Um, a single MP to represent them, when the number of people living in that constituency might be far, far greater than the number of people living in a rural constituency. Why did they do this? Why were the boundaries not changed? Undoubtedly, it was a decision by the right-wing, authoritarian Kaisers to keep power out of the hands of the working class and specifically to curtail the number of socialist deputies being represented in the Reichstag, where at all possible. And this, despite the fact that, or it's worth remembering, I should say, rather, that this happened, and yet still the socialists are able to become the largest party in the Reichstag. So it doesn't entirely work, but imagine how powerful the socialists would have been if they were fairly elected by fairly chosen constituent boundaries. There were other problems that the Reichstag had. Um, For starters, or for a second I should say, they could not... um, you couldn't get paid to be a Reichstag member. This made it very hard for the Reichstag to be um, entirely representative because it was essentially meant to be an institution that gentlemen who had enough income to live on could attend, whereas a working-class person... Could um, theoretically wouldn't be able to attend because they wouldn't be able to feed themselves at the same time as fulfilling their duties as a deputy. I don't know that it worked like that in practice, but the principle behind it was one that was meant to keep working-class people out of the Reichstag. So it was an organisation that um, didn't accurately represent the political views of the people, ...and had very little power, in any case, to make any sort of legislation... ...that either reacted and curtailed the power of the Kaiser... ...or that reflected the wishes of ordinary people. So not that democratic. However, their real problem, or an even bigger problem... ...came when you look at the Bundesrat. The Bundesrat is the upper house of the, of the, um, the German parliament. It has 58 members who are chosen by the states by germany as a is a federal um what's the word a federal country a federal institution made up of the different german states and each state would elect um would elect a member from its uh from its state assembly that would go and be on the Bundesrat. It was part of, you know, just like the um, upper house of the house of uh, of the the British parliament, it was the upper house of the German parliament, it was involved in law-making, able to change the constitution, all of this type of thing. In practice, it was a barrier to radical thought, a barrier to represent, to the representation of the growing left-wing sentiment of the German working class. The way it worked was this. On the Bundesrat, there were um, 17 Prussian seats. Prussia elected 17 men to be on the Bundesrat. And in order to veto any piece of legislation that the, um, the Reichstag put forward, or that was put forward by, I guess, by anybody, like, I suppose, if the Kaiser proposed something, uh, not the Kaiser, if the Chancellor proposed a law or something like that, um, to put that, the, to, to veto that proposed law, you only needed 14 members of the Bundesrat to say no to it. Now, there's 17 Prussians... You only need 14 votes. And this means that three Prussians can stay at home in bed and still the Prussians have an absolute control over what happens in German lawmaking. Now, this is a particular problem in that the the Prussian state assembly is elected by a disproportionate voting system. The more tax you pay, the more votes you get in the election. And this means that Prussian representatives to the, to the Bundesrat are almost always chosen by the richest people in Prussia. The Junkers, so I don't know if you remember that phrase, but like the landed aristocratic gentlemen who are very, very conservative, very, very reactionary in their world view, and generally was against anything new and anything radical. And they represent a kind of um, a bulwark against any kind of democratic representation of the majority of the will of the people because any law the Reichstag tries to put forward, any piece of legislation it proposes, anything that it tries to say can be shot down by these um, 17 Prussians in the Bundesrat. And they are kind of completely capable to overturn anything that the Reichstag says. In effect, they are more powerful than it. To give you an illustration of, of the balance, I'm taking this from the um, the Edexcel GCE History Kaiser to Fuhrer textbook. In the Prussian state elections, 418,000 voters for the Conservative parties produced... 212 conservative seats, whereas 600,000 voters for the socialists, for the social democrats, produced a grand total of six seats. It wasn't a democratic system, and the less democratic an institution was, the more power it had. So, to round off talking about um, sort of the institutions of the German political system, I suppose I should mention the army. The army perceived itself as being a state within a state. It was effectively a law within itself. It was um, beholden to the Kaiser, under his control. Um, All of the appointments to major military positions were done by him. It um, had seats on the cabinet, so that it kind of inputted and communicated with the Kaiser and with with, with the Chancellor. And it had the power to declare martial law at any time it thought appropriate, which it did from time to time. Um, and this institution, this institution central to the Kaiser's idea of himself and central to um, German identity to one degree or another, as we will see perhaps in a future podcast, despised democracy as a principle. The, um, the army was dominated by either the Junkers, the, the landed gentry, or by sort of um, professional soldiers from less wealthy backgrounds. But they shared in common a deep mistrust and dislike of the democratic system. So, to summarise what we have learnt today, the Kaiser, the Bundesrat, and the army, and the Chancellor were all more powerful than the Reichstag, and all of them, to one degree or another, were deeply anti-democratic or undemocratically empowered organisations and institutions. The one democratic system in Germany, which did have a fairly democratic way of being chosen, the Reichstag, was severely curtailed in, the, um, in the, its ability to affect German law by both the power of the Kaiser to dismiss them at any time he saw fit, the Chancellor to ignore them, and the Bundesrat to veto them. I did mention that the Kaiser could could just send them home at any time. I don't think I did, actually. Gosh. So the Kaiser can send the Reichstag away, can dissolve the Reichstag at any moment that he sees fit. Like, whenever he gets bored of having to listen to them, he can shut them down. But he has to call another election for a new Reichstag after that. But my point is, he doesn't have to listen to them nobody does really who has any power in Germany. So I hope that you see from this that um, the, the democratic or the, the, the constitutional structure of the German government was one and parliament was one that was deeply antipathetic to democracy and that Germany in terms of its, its political structure was not a democratic society between the years 1870 And 1914. Thank you very much, guys. I look forward to speaking to you again soon.